Kia ora, I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. I'm talking today at his winery in central Otago with the actor, winemaker and New Zealand legend Sam Neill. Sam was born in Northern Ireland to an English mother and New Zealand father, grew up in New Zealand and became a world-famous actor. He's also a winemaker, a documentary maker and the owner of some Twitter-famous pigs. Now, of all our podcast guests, Sam has generated by far the most excitement. I can't count the number of offers I got from people keen to accompany me here today. Sam, welcome. It's, it's great to be here recording with you. Yeah, thank you. And I think, you know, I was saying earlier, I think you've probably got the best portfolio career there is. Wine, acting, documentary making. Which of those three occupations gives you the greatest pleasure, or is it maybe the, the combination that works so well? Well, I've always thought there's no point in just limiting yourself to doing one thing. And I, I've actually, when I left university, I, I'm a sort of, um, I'm a kind of grandma Moses. I'm a self-taught actor because when I wanted to start as an actor, A, there wasn't any acting school to be had, and the New Zealand government's they always used to. The Arts Council used to send two actors to um, England every year to go to RADA or Lambda or something like that and get properly educated as an actor. Now, of course, there are there are more than one uh, drama schools in New Zealand. We didn't have that when I was a young fellow. So, the second thing was that there wasn't really any work um, as an actor when I was sort of starting out. I went to work for a government outfit called the New Zealand National Film Unit, which was a little bit like the National Film Board of Canada and was set up under the same auspices. So I, I worked in documentaries for about seven years before I was able to become a full-time actor. The, re- the way I did that was I got it was a sort of happenstance, really, and great good fortune. A friend of mine, um, Roger Donaldson, he... He was. Uh, he and Ian Mune were going to make a feature film, the first feature film made in New Zealand for 17 years. So we didn't really have a film industry at all. It's a film called Sleeping Dogs, which we shot in 77, I think. And um, that led to me being offered work in Australia. I left New Zealand. I went to live in uh, England for a number of years. and um, But now I'm sort of based uh, back in... New Zealand, and I got interested in wine. My great-grandfather came um, over here in 1861 from Northern Ireland with two of his brothers, came from a big um, Northern Irish family. They set up as merchants in Dunedin uh, about the same time as the gold rush and probably made more money from the gold rush than the people that actually dug the gold. We are now sitting uh, in central Otago, which was, of course, the epicenter of, of gold rushes in, in New Zealand. And um, this is the place where I used to come as a, as a child. My father um, was third generation New Zealander. I'm fourth. We used to come up here in central Otago for our, our holidays. And um, my father, who spent 20 years in the British Army and had fought in places like Italy and Palestine and so on. He was very interested in wine, 
and he was a third-generation wine merchant after, after he left the army. And he always used to say, I don't know why people aren't growing wine in, as we were on the way to Lectiano and, uh, and Wanaka and so on, uh, where we'd camp, or we'd come up here for skiing, and it would always puzzle him. That he said, this is perfect for wine. I don't know why no one's doing it. So all these years later, I'm growing it. It's curious that uh, there are so many people of, of Irish or English or Anglo-Irish uh, origins who grow wine all over the world, and I'm one of them. You're one of them, um, because it's not so easy to do in the UK, of course. We do have some. It's a growing, growing industry. Yes, but well, it's champagne. Well, yes. But we're not calling it champagne. No, we're calling it sparkling, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've said that you want to make the world's best Pinot Noir, but you said before that you're proud of all your wines. But do you have a favourite in particular at the moment? Oh, look, um, the single vineyard uh, Pinot Noirs, that, that's... I mean, I, I don't really see any point in just growing wine. Um, I, I'm not really in the booze business. I mean, I'm, uh, we, well, we call it the cheering up business um, because it, cause I think you feel a lot more cheerful after a glass of my wine than you did before. Goodness knows, with t- the times being what they are, we can all do with a bit of a cheer up. Exactly, and a good glass of wine, yeah. But, but Pinot really is, is it because it's a, it's a very difficult wine to, to, to grow. It's a very finickety wine. It, it, you can only grow it in, in a very few little pockets in the world. Central Targo is, is one. Martin Bridge, just over the hill from where you are, is another one. There's just a few little pockets where it's possible to grow Pinot Noir really well. And this is one of them. Do you export to the UK? Do you know what your exports are like? Um, yes, we do export to the, to the UK. And um, people uh, you know, who are interested in... in in Pinot Noir, uh, happily buy New Zealand Pinot Noir. So coming coming back a bit to your acting, so you started here in New Zealand, but then you became a, a, a film star of global reach. You know, people were well. Let's go back a bit further than that. Because I am a New Zealander, but my my origins are as follows: really English, Irish, and Anglo-Irish. Um, I'm a fourth generation New Zealander, but my father was in and now defunct regiment, the Royal Irish Fusiliers. And that's why I was born in Irma. So the first seven years of my life were, were there. Then we came across with the New Zealand shipping line and, and exported ourselves back to New Zealand, which is probably uh, not a bad thing as far as my growing up was concerned because I guess 10 years after that or so, the trouble started, and I certainly wouldn't have enjoyed being uh, in Northern Ireland at that time. I love going back to Northern Ireland. I feel very connected there. Do you have memories of that, of those Yeah, very strong years? memories, yeah. yeah. And Armagh, um, and um, most particularly a place called Torella, Torella Beach, which, was, which is on the, on the coast facing England. It's just opposite the mountains of Maud. It's a very beautiful little corner of yeah. Ireland. And we had what, what had been a Coast Guard's house right on the rocks. Uh, and so it was sort of an idyllic place to... To grow up, and I like going back, not because I've got any particular family connections there, but the place that your, where your earliest memories are has has a has a very kind of um, I, I don't know. There's something I'm very stirred by the landscape in England and Ireland when I go back, and I never know whether that's to do with my DNA or whether those are my earliest unformed memories. There is that real connection, isn't there? And you've obviously got that connection of actually having been born there. Mm. But I do actually think also for a whole load of Brits and New Zealanders, 
we just feel at home in each other's countries. And there's something we were talking yeah. as we were driving through. Jo's from Scotland. She said she feels at home here in this part of the country because the landscape is similar. And so there is that, you know, opposite sides of the world, but a real feeling of familiarity. During my lifetime, there's been very... Um, lots of things have happened between New Zealand and, and, yeah. and the UK. And my parents are of the generation. They always called England home or the UK home even though my father's a third generation New Zealander. And that's changed now. Oh, that's very much yeah. changed. You never hear that anymore. Yeah. Mind you, he'd been sent to school there, and then he spent all that time in the army. So I think my father was always slightly, slightly out of, uh, fish out of water in both places. Right. So yeah. he felt English by disposition and by, by education and so on. And, and his, his time in the army was very vivid. He fought through Italy during the war and so on. And, you know, he was stationed in Germany. He did all that stuff the British Army did in those days. He was actually in Greece during the Civil War, one of those uh, bits of British military history that doesn't get mentioned much now. <laughs> but the British had a presence in, in, in Greece in 1947, about the time I was born. I was never quite sure whether he was on the right side or not. The British were backing the Royalists. I think the Russians were backing the, the partisans. <laughs> And he spent a year as a military advisor to one of the generals in, in, in Greece. Yeah, but they, they felt very connected to England. And I think when England joined the common market, as it was known then, that was a big shock to New, yeah. to New Zealand. And yeah. people forget that. That was a very, very big shock. We were cut off because we were a sort of vassal state, really. We produced cheap produce. And it all went to And it went to England. And then it was um, suddenly the UK joined the common market, and uh, which I completely understand. I think it was exactly the right thing for them to do. And we were rather abandoned, which meant that um, we had to um, pull our bootstraps up and become independent. And I think that was actually, in the long term, a very good thing for New Zealand and Australia. It's, an, it's really interesting because people still raise it with me all the time, sometimes with a sense of grievance, often now also with a sense, well, actually, it turned out to be a really good thing because we were already diversifying trade routes and then we had to accelerate that and do it much more. And um, it makes much more sense to have your you know, trade partners closer to you than on the other side of the world. But it, is, it was obviously a really big identity thing and an identity shift in a way at that point in 1973. Yes, look, uh, we're very connected um, yeah. in, in all sorts of ways and those, those connections still, still stand. I mean, New Zealand is far more interested uh, than it used to be in, in our Polynesian origins. Uh, uh, te reo is, is increasingly important, the Maori language, to our uh, pre-European uh, roots have become increasingly important. They were, they were pretty much ignored when I was, when I was mm. small. So we've become a very different country but those connections to the UK have always been strong and, and it never occurred to me it's different for young actors now it never occurred to me to go when my horizons broadened I thought I'll end up in England because I think that's because I, I grew up I was really interested in English films I wasn't particularly taken with American films yeah. I loved British films and there was a real film industry when I was yeah, young and quite a different feel to the, to the Hollywood industry as well. I liked English acting. When I got to England and I found I could work readily there and I'd, I'd made a lot of films and so on there, television, that um, being an untrained actor, I wasn't quite sure whether I'd, 
whether I'd cut the mustard there. And then you absolutely did. And you, you're this film star of global reach with real blockbusters like Jurassic Park and Dead Calm or The Hunt for Red October. But I think what I like as well is you do these, these big American or British films, but you also keep coming back and doing uniquely New Zealand films. And I think my favourites are The Piano by Jane Campion and then, of course, um, more recently, The Hunt for the Wilder People by Taika Waititi. You're obviously able to be very discerning and really pick and choose about what projects you do. So what is it now that, you, that makes you decide to do a project? Well, I try to be discerning. Uh, I'm not always as discerning as I might be. Um, you can't always know in advance, can you? And sometimes, you know, the, the phone hasn't gone for a little while and you think, and then you you get offered something that you probably shouldn't do, and then you do, and then you do it. For instance, I, I did notoriously about five years ago, I think, a film with Tim Roth and Gerard Depardieu that was about and funded by FIFA. Uh, I've got a couple of suits in my in in my cupboard up there that were um, financed by Sepp Blatter himself, and. Uh, this, this is a film that cost a lot of money and made absolutely nothing to, right. to straight, serve it. Not there. even straight to DVD. Or um, <laughs> no, I don't, think, no, I don't think it went to DVD. But, um, boy, it was fun to do. Yeah. You know, we went to Rio and we went to Zurich. We spent three weeks and four weeks in Paris or something. It was fantastic. So sometimes, um, you know, the, the things that you probably shouldn't have done turn out to be the most fun. Yeah. Uh, and the things that were really hard to do turn out to be great. Is there any one film that had a particular impact on you or particularly changed the way you thought about things? There, there are certain films that I'm very fond of that that um, I think not enough people saw. I did a film in England called Dean Spanley. It was actually a New Zealand production as it happened, but that was a film I was very, very pleased with. There, there are these odd little gems that, that turn out to be cult films later on. No one sees them at the time. A film that's getting a lot of attention at the moment is, is called In the Mouth of Madness. It was a, a John Carpenter film. And again, hardly anyone saw it when it came out. But horror, horror film aficionados are fond of it. There's a bunch of them. A film, a film called Possession. I thought it was a really interesting film. Yeah. We made in Berlin in 1980. You know, there's, there's lots of little things like that, which I've always kind of valued the experience of making them, but um, sometimes it takes a while for people yeah. to actually get to see yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And I just loved The Hunt for the Wilder People. I'm not normally a laugh-out-loud sort of person. I sit very quietly, but I think what's, it's just so funny and also very moving as well, and that must have been a, that must have been a fun yeah. one to make. Well, and it's also... It, it was, I f yeah, I felt it was a kind of gift to New Zealand that mm. film, and because it brought New Zealanders together in a in a, yeah. in a strange way, and it's a, it's a film that has a sort of wide popular appeal. You know, it's, there's not many films you can the whole family exactly can, can everyone sit can down sit and watch, down and, and it had it had heart. Yeah, sometimes you know, there are films that sort of restore your faith in in the whole film thing. So let's let's move on and talk a bit about your documentary making. And this year, 2019, marks the 250th anniversary of the first encounters between Captain James Cook and the Maori of New Zealand. And that was really the coming together of these two great seafaring traditions and the beginning of modern Aotearoa New Zealand as we know it. And of course, it's shared history 
with the UK and New Zealand, but it but it's not without its challenges. It's sometimes a difficult history. And your series last year, Uncharted with Sam Neill, you, you retraced Captain Cook's journey and his first encounters with, with the people of the Pacific. Um, and it's and it's really brilliant. And so I want to talk a bit about that and and how your experience of working on that series changed your understanding and perception of, of New Zealand and the Pacific region? Um, it's interesting. I, I came away, um, it, it, these stories, this history can be uh, interpreted, can be viewed in so many ways. I mean, hi history is always being retold. Uh, I was taught a very different narrative when I was at school about Cook's so-called so-called discovery. discovery. Yeah, you can't really discover a place that where, where there are people <laughs> living in it. Exactly. I was very keen to see uh, see see this from both sides of the beach. I, at the end of it, I came away rather than seeing one side bad, one side good. I thought it was much more nuanced story than that, and I came away with increased admiration for Cook. Mm. I thought he was an extraordinary man and a great navigator a great adventurer. I, I have nothing but admiration for him, even though he made some terrible errors. He made some extraordinary decisions too that, that um, I'm, I'm full of admiration for. And I also came away with an increased admiration for, for Maori, particularly those extraordinary navigators that really did discover these incredibly remote places in the world. I was very fortunate to meet a man called Nainoa Thompson who's a very famous, he, he, he more than anyone is responsible for the, for the rediscovery of, of Polynesian uh, long-distance navigation. Um, his story in itself I could have done six hours on. Uh, we had a very wide brief. Yeah, it's such a rich theme, isn't it? There's so much you can... There's so much to learn. Uh, there's so much to learn here. And um, um, I'm really looking forward to this year where... Uh, I, th I don't think we call them celebrations anymore. I think it's more a marking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. A, a marking of 250 yeah, years from yeah. first contact uh, yeah. here and in Australia. Of course, we couldn't just do that without looking to what, what followed Cook, which we, which we did to an extent in, 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 the, in the series. While it's, it's by and large a fairly unhappy story as far as Indigenous people went, it's also a very encouraging story because you see... Um, a revitalization of the of cultures yeah. all over the Pacific now, yeah. uh, a regeneration of of of, um, of language, uh, of morale, of all sorts of things. And um, I think the whole Pacific region, while it faces uh, a whole lot of new challenges, particularly to do with um, uh, climate change, is a pretty exciting place to be right now. It's a really exciting place. And the UK, actually, we're opening three new high commissions in the Pacific this year. So we're opening up new high commissions in Samoa, Tonga and Vanuatu, um, which, is, which is partly, I think, a recognition that we stepped back a bit too much from the, from the Pacific um, a few decades ago. But it's also because the Pacific is on the front line in terms of the fight against climate change and also our work to protect our oceans. And that's an area where we've got real strengths and we really want to partner with them. So we're definitely focusing more on that and, of course, working very closely with Australia and New Zealand as Indeed. well. Indeed, well, that's, that's very good news because, look, I'm concerned... Uh, 
about many things in the Pacific. There are these enormous challenges that um, all, all our island nations are going to have to face. But uh, politically, one feels the presence of China all over the place, for good or for ill, and I'm not sure which is what, but there's a lot of Chinese activity throughout the, through, throughout the region, and um, uh, which is one thing, but there's none of it seems to be particularly a free lunch. Now, Australia and New Zealand, the aid seem, has, has always been there and it's going to be beefed up, and I'm very happy about that. The Chinese are putting a lot of money into infrastructure, but generally speaking, my understanding is that these are generally loans. Mm. So I'm very anxious about Pacific nations to be uh, you know, in hock up to their eyeballs, uh, and there's yeah. no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, the protection of fisheries is absolutely paramount. You can see that being eroded in a number of different places, and it's a, it's a matter of concern. Um, you know, we, we have to be mindful about um, our, our geopolitical position. Quite a lot to navigate, isn't it? And I think it's really important for these countries to have a range of partners to work with. I, I mentioned before we started that I'm also the governor of Pitcairn and the Pitcairn Islands, and and the work that we're doing on um, with Henderson Island, with with trying to highlight the plight of plastic pollution there because it's the most plastic polluted area in the world. Um, so I would just gently encourage you if you're doing a, if you're doing another series on the Pacific, you could think about going to the to the Pitcairn Islands. Yeah, there was a number of places that I'd love to have gone and and there's there's so much story to be told about about Pitcairn particularly that first year after the after the bounty landed and got burnt in the bay uh, I also wanted to go to Easter Island but we, yes. we had budgetary constraints so yeah. that there were there were stories we couldn't tell. You could have been going forever, exactly. And Sam, you are, um, as well as being a winemaker and an actor and a documentary maker, you're also a total um, global Twitter star. Uh, you've got, I checked, and you've got 265.5 thousand followers on the last count. Um, and... And you have a great line in um, small plastic pigs and pigs doing yoga. Um, but you also, you know, tweet a lot about um, politics, the film world, wine, and it seems to bring together all strands of your life. I've rather, I've rather retreated on the political front in, in, in Twitter. It's just become a kind of shouting, uh, an echo chamber of, of angry people. So um, I hardly ever comment on, on politics anymore there. And, and instead, I, I, I do things that amuse me um, concerning my pigs and my ducks and things like that. And that cause a lot of joy. I think <laughs> there was something recently, I saw a, an article recently that said, um, Sam Neill doing yoga with his pigs has cheered everyone up. It was the thing that cheered well, up all of Twitter. It doesn't <laughs> so. take much to cheer people up these <laughs> no, days. That's that's I, I don't know, things seem, seem a bit grey elsewhere in the world. But so you see it as a, as a way, you like to use it as a way of lightening and amusing rather than some sort of form of, of changing the world? Or... At the moment, yeah. yes. I mean, look, it, it, uh, there's so much distress around at the moment in the UK and in, in America. Um, I, I, I think a little diversion doesn't do anyone any harm. It is odd, though, that um, straight up there, I don't know if we can see him. I'll put my glasses on. Um, I've got a pig who's an absolute media star, and 
No, he's he's obviously in the shade now. If I put a, if I put um, you know a picture of 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 uh, a couple of us picking grapes, you know, we'll get thirty likes. I put a picture of a pig doing yoga, and and it goes viral, and yeah. the internet goes nuts. I I don't I don't understand it. So, but he's he's a he's a complete. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is about him. He's got media charisma. He's got star uh, presence, absolutely. <laughs> There'd be lots of actors around the world that would kill for some of that. But it's all, it's all look, th- there is a devious uh, plan behind all this. Mm. It's, it's a kind of covert way of getting to Paddock some kind of brand recognition, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've got one more question, if I can, which is, you're obviously a polymath. You're seriously successful in loads of areas. Is there anything that still makes you nervous or keeps you awake at night? Oh, yes. I think there's, there's if you allow it, there's lots of things that can worry out there. Uh, I've, actually, this last week, I've had two approaches from people who are doing something about d- depression. And we've all, we've all got people we know or related to that, are, that suffer from depression. I think... I'm not sure if there's more depression around or whether people are just willing to um, you know, own it a bit more than they used to. I, I, I don't quite know what that is. But I, I also think that um, a lot of what I do is, is, a, is a kind of... Um, uh, Liam Neeson said to me, I said, I'm feeling a bit, feeling a bit down at the moment. He said, Sam, look... Uh, Motion is the lotion. Just keep walking. So, uh, um, and 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 I and I think keeping busy is a is a great diversion because I think actually you're not either depressed or you're not depressed. We're all on some kind of scale. This can and and it can happen to any of us at any time. And I've touch wood. I've I've never suffered from full out depression, but. You know, we all get the blues. But I think that can balloon out if you're not careful. So a lot of what... I, I seem to be a little hyperactive doing all these different things. I actually feel like I'm the laziest person in the world, but I do get out of the chair once in a while <laughs> and, and I, I get doing stuff. So there's always projects around the farm here. I'm always looking for scripts that appeal. Um, I am always seem to be on a plane traveling somewhere. Yeah. I'm going to the U.S., on Tuesday to uh, to uh, plug the Cook series, uh, yeah. There's always something to do, and and now you know my my children are all grown up. This I have to be a little more proactive in finding those things to do. But the idea of retiring and and just uh, I suppose golf is a sort of is a, is a diversion for some people, but mm. I can't bear I it. Can't see you retiring in a hurry. <laughs> I don't really see the business case for it either. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't. I, I don't see the point in retiring. I'm. I'm going to keep doing stuff until yeah, until I fall over. Well, thank you so much, Sam Neil. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great to meet you, and I'm looking forward to trying a bit of that wine. Now we're we're through dry Let's January. Do it. Wonderful. Thanks very much. Did you have a dry January? Well, I did. I did it in. Liar pants on fire. <laughs> I did. I did a week here and a week there, but so. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.